This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Cece Ferrara. She spoke at a homegrown Black Lives Matter rally in Bern on August 9th about what it was like to be the only black student at Bern Knox Westerlough. Her kindness shines through as she describes both the experiences she suffered through as well as the sense of common humanity she gained from her high school social studies teacher, James Lemire. Two close friends at BKW kept her from leaving the school by listening to her and accepting her. She teaches now at an independent school where the children are encouraged to campaign for causes they believe in. So without further ado, we're just going to have Cece read to you her speech as it was presented to an audience that was just raptly quiet and listening, or maybe 120 people um, in the pavilion in the park on Burn. So picture yourself there, and here is Cece. Hi, everyone. My name is Cece Ferrara. I attended BKW from 2001, and I graduate until 2014. When I was four years old, I played in a waiting room while my adoptive mother, Jane, sat nearby. There were other children there, including a little white boy around my age. He and I played together, and he asked my mother, Are you her mommy? She told him that she was. He then asked her, If you are her mommy, then why is she brown? Up until this point, I had believed that traits like skin color meant as little as traits like eye color, hair color, and whether or not you could roll your tongue. I had believed that, just like two brown-haired parents could have blonde children, two white parents could have a brown child. I did not understand that humans could be grouped. My mother explained what I didn't know. She said, That's because her daddy is black. This answer satisfied the boy, but only made me curious. This blackness, inherited from my biological father, made me different from my adoptive mother. This blackness confused someone and made them demand an explanation for my existence. I could not yet understand what race was, but I knew that others saw my brown skin and thought that I did not belong. The next year, I started kindergarten at BKW. In the cafeteria, a boy a year older was bugging my group. He grabbed my arm and said to me, Oh, look, you're made of chocolate. He then tried to bite me. His friends laughed while I ripped my arm away from him and ran not knowing if it was a joke or if he would have actually bitten me. I was the only African-American girl in my class and one of the very few black students in the entire school. My parents wanted me to know my heritage, 
So I grew up reading books about Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Malcolm X, Booker T. Washington, Rosa Parks, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Surrounded by stories of bravery, intellect, and determination, the greatness of their characters became representative of the black community in my mind. But this did not last for long. During middle school, I found myself being expected to speak on or have an opinion of anything related to people of color. I was asked on multiple occasions to be a spokesperson for my race. People began to tell me things like, you sound white and you're the whitest black person I know. I laughed along with them. My classmates began to make fun of people who were what they called ghetto or ratchet. They made fun of the boys who sagged their pants, calling them wanksters. They developed their own style, an unofficial uniform of a camo sweatshirt, jeans and steel-toed boots for boys, or Uggs and leggings for girls. They blasted post-9-11 country music from their truck, from the backs of which flew Confederate flags. Whenever I spoke against these flags, citing what they meant to people like me, I was either met with an amused dismissal or defensive confrontation. My classmates did not only adopt the symbols of racism in their teenage years, they also adopted the beliefs. One day, while riding the bus to a friend's house, a group of underclassmen were getting unruly behind me. They were loud and weren't staying in their seats, but their behavior hadn't yet attracted the attention of the driver. A girl in my class stood from her seat and came down the aisle, stopping next to me. You guys need to stop it, she said. You're being loud and annoying, and you're acting like a bunch of N-words. Her eyes met mine before she returned to her seat. I said nothing, and I did nothing. An African-American boy joined our grade. I was told by my peers that we should be friends because he was also black. We became enemies. I hated how loud and how loud he was and how he drew attention to himself. It annoyed me that he pandered to our school audience, playing into all the stereotypes they already believed. It annoyed me even more that my classmates accepted him, invited him to parties, and laughed at his disruptive behavior. Couldn't he see that it was just novelism that intrigued them? Didn't he care about the racist jokes that they made at his expense? I was angry then. I was angry that I'd spent my entire life trying to fit into a community that would always see me as other, or even worse, as one of the good ones. I was angry that I'd made it a goal to become as pale as physically possible. I was angry that I'd fried my hair with a flat iron. I was angry that I spent hundreds of hours practicing my diction and accent so that I would sound intelligent and cultured. I did all of this and more in order to be taken seriously. I should have been growing. Instead, I was stunting myself.
I can't determine the number of times I have been called a racist slur to my face, but I estimate it as upwards of 50. I also can't tell you the number of times I, or myself and my black friends, have been stopped by police for no reason other than looking suspicious. I can't tell you the number of times men have fetishized me because of my race, or, conversely, decided not to pursue me romantically after finding out that I'm half black. I can't tell you the number of times I've been dismissed for being political, just for mentioning black history in conversations about history. I have not had the typical African-American experience. In fact, I stand today in a place of relative privilege compared to some other groups of black people. But my experience is a black American experience. Black lives matter. That is truth. But the actions of our society and individuals within our society has shown us that black lives do not matter in practice. I want all lives matter to be truth as well. But to get there, we need to dismantle the systems and policies in place that render that statement a lie. We need to recognize the issues that black people face. We need to hold racists accountable. We need to fight racism wherever we find it. It doesn't matter if racism appears as a joke or a term of endearment, because this creates a culture in which the violent, malicious racists feel safe enough to discriminate against and harm others. Like the children who laughed at the boy trying to take a bite of my brown flesh, rewarding and accepting these behaviors only leads to escalating incidents. And I know we can all do better. Wow. Thank you very much, Cece. I'd just like to hear a little about how you came to write that speech. What what made you decide to step forward and and do this? How how did that come about? So, um, very recently, I moved from Knox, um, a little bit downstate to Tivoli, um, which is sort of the Red Hook um, area, and I have been working at an independent school where we are very much community-minded and we encourage our children to be, um, <laughs> to recognize the issues in the community around them and to campaign for the causes they believe in. Um, and I realized that I could not be asking my students to do that if I was not willing to step up and face an issue that I, that I had grown up with. Um, and so I got in contact with Sarah Gordon, who led me to Lori Searle. Um, and when I told them I was interested in being involved and in speaking, um, they were so supportive and welcoming. And I sat down one night um, it was the middle of the night, and I just sort of wrote out everything that I wanted wanted to say. Um, these just small moments that maybe to the other people involved weren't a big deal, 
maybe they've already forgotten about them, but they are small moments that stayed in my mind all the way to adulthood, you know, including an incident when I was four years old. Um, so I just want, wanted to share how these experiences have impacted a, a person as they grow up. And you did that beautifully. How interesting that it was in the middle of the night where there you were with your memories just pouring this out. What struck me about it is so often at rallies, the speakers... um, what struck me is there's no bitterness in the way you speak. It, it's um, very hard to listen to because the events are so painful, but I think it becomes harder to listen to and more telling for the listener because you don't um, inject, you say you were angry, but you you don't speak in a way that's angry. I, I, maybe I'm not <laughs> expressing myself well. What I want to ask you is, how did you, as a human being, maintain this kindness, this aura of kindness that you project, even as you're telling these stories that would make many of us uh, sound nasty or bitter? Can you just talk a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for for a long time, I was... Um, I was extremely angry, and when I went to talk about these sort of things, it came across as almost hateful. Um, It came across as incredibly angry. But I'm a person who can't really hold on to anger. Um, It just ends up, it ends up tiring me out. I can't sustain, you know, this fight for progress. If it's just fueled by anger, I instead, you know, shifted my focus to basing it on experience and facts and wanting to make a difference because a lot of my anger was just based on empathy in, in most circumstances. And I just needed to ex- um, extend that empathy to the other humans involved, even if they were the ones saying something or doing something racist or cruel to myself. There are humans on all sides of the of these situations, and I think that it's more effective to speak to each other's humanity than it is to um, yell or, or degrade or attack another person. Um, but at the same time, it is completely valid to show your anger. Um, everybody processes differently. How mature you are way beyond your years. Um, maybe you could go back in time to your upbringing. I know that you mentioned in your speech, which is all I know about you, um, about uh, your adoptive parents being sure that you were reading books about various black leaders and you were surrounded, you said, by their bravery and intellect and determination. But if you could just um, talk a little about your family growing up, about who your parents are and how they raised you. I think that would be useful for all of us to learn from. Yeah, um, 
So my mom and dad, who have, they adopted me at the age of five, but they were involved in my life um, from infancy in varying degrees. Um, and we moved to Knox in 2001. And my parents, let's see, my mom is from Scotland, and my father is an Italian from Brooklyn. And so I grew up in this household of really rich culture, um, and culture that sort of isn't re- doesn't represent the communities in which we have lived. Um, but because my parents are older, they do have some more, you know, traditional sort of beliefs. And so I was raised with this belief in manners and politeness, etiquette. Um, and really, we've been very open-minded my entire life. And I think that the, that the quality that my parents instilled in me the most was to be kind to all other people. Well, that's a great quality to have. I wish more of us had that. So uh, some of the things that you call for in your speech, and uh, the power of your speech comes from the simplicity of the words, but really what you're calling for is a very... uh, societal transformation. Um, We need to dismantle the systems and policies in place in order, you said, you know, to get to a place where all lives matter um, and have it not just be a a counter slogan to Black Lives Matter. Did you have any sort of directions or ideas in mind um, how as individuals or as institutions that we're all part of, we can we can start doing that? Yeah. Um, so, um, what, there's a bunch of places where you could start with things like this. But, um, I mean, for the average person, just being aware of the racial disparities that um, Black Americans face in our society is the first step. Um, there are tons and tons of resources, and I try to share them on on my Facebook page as much as I can. But um, really looking at, you know, your place of employment, your work, whatever part of society you're r- really involved in, and making sure that there aren't these sort of discriminatory practices in place. Um, for example, if you are somebody who works um, for a, a lender for mortgages, Black Americans are somewhere around 105% more likely to have a high-interest, high-risk mortgage, um, and that leads to less Black Americans owning homes. Um, making sure in school that Black students are being treated uh, fairly when it comes to punishment. Um, Black students are about 18 times more likely to be suspended than white students from school. Um, And allowing natural hair, not making fun of 
people for using AAVE or what some people call Ebonics, you know, that's a dialect of English. There are tons and tons of small steps and lots of resources available online um, in different books. I've read a lot of um, Ibram X. Kendi, um, his, his books, How to Be an Anti-Racist and Stamped from the Beginning, are two wonderful resources and um, sort of these introductory tools on how to wrap your head around these disparities and the um, from where they stem, basically. Yeah. Um, I read Stamp from the beginning because one of the school districts we cover, Gilderland, is having um, both students and board members reading that. And I wonder if you could speak a little. You apparently are a teacher. You mentioned this independent school. Um, or tell me what you do with the school and what the school is and maybe a little about if that's part of the curriculum there, um, how race is dealt with or black history is taught. What just what do you do with the school? Tell us about the school. <laughs> sure. So I am a third grade assistant teacher at High Meadow School in Stone Ridge, New York. And we are working with um, Amy White from Teaching Tolerance um, to make, uh, we are actually having some anti-racist training coming up at the end of this month. Um, to look at our hiring and um, admissions processes, um, the curriculum, just to take another look and make sure that we are being, um, you know, (laughs) equitable and fair, and we are not perpetuating these same practices that happen a lot um, in some private schools um, and independent schools, especially with admittance and um, financial aid. So tell us a little about the school overall. Um, how big is it? Um, it, it? It's independent, so is it affiliated with any kind of religion or organization? Or um, It is not religious, um, and it is relatively small. Um, we only go, we go up to eighth grade and there's only about like 15 children per class per grade oh how Um, wonderful (laughs) that must be just wonderful for you and the kids so have you said you were inspired to do this partly because you expect your students to do this and have students at that young age um taken up causes in the community and and what sort of things have they have they done Um, Yes, so absolutely. Um, So our kids are very much um, into environmentalism and Black Lives Matter movement right now. Um, I have been to a lot of protests and rallies in Kingston, Hudson, that sort of area, and I've run into so many of our students there. Um, They also, you know, do like the Eco Challenge and... um, a lot, they, they have to do a lot of community service in order to graduate from the school. That just sounds like a really wonderful school. So as you look back at your own education um, entirely, as I understand it, at Burn Knox Westerlo, were there things that 
we're good about it. Were there moments or teachers or classes that um, countered some of these very difficult, and I'm not saying they would cancel out the experiences that you described in your speech, but that perhaps offered some balance or some hope for for you as <laughs> as a student going there if you could just talk about about that a little yeah absolutely so um one class that i really remember fondly was mr lemire's uh, sociology class um and i remember just learning about other humans and groups of humans and the, we went on a field trip that I think about so much and I will never, ever forget. But we had been studying um, crime, violence, and especially gang violence and affiliation. Um, and then we went on a field trip to a max security prison and learned about the inside of a prison and how it works and, um, you know, interactions between inmates um and then we sat down and we talked to two inmates there who were convicted murderers and we listened to them and we asked them questions and had dialogues with them and understanding their stories kind of helped us put into perspective something that you like could never imagine you know how could someone become a criminal? How could someone become this monster that we have in our in our minds? And what was truly, you know, kind of heartbreaking about that is it could have happened to any one of us had, you know, the dice rolled differently. Isn't that remarkable? And this was as a high school student in Jim Lemire's sociology class. And did you, um, you must have, because you were there, you listened to his speech um, at the rally on Sunday. What, what were your thoughts as you were listening to that? And here was a teacher you admired talking about his own evolution in understanding prejudice. Um, I am so just, I look up to Mr. Lemire so much, and I'm also so proud of him for being involved and for always being this voice of reason and information. Um, you know, I'm also friends with him on Facebook, so I, I have seen, like, his posts, and he is so respectful and infor informative when he speaks to others. Um, and I see him as, like, this true ally to marginalized and oppressed people. And are there other um, BKW faculty or other BKW experiences that also shine bright? That would be hard to top that one of talking to convicted murderers <laughs> and understanding their humanity. But um, even, uh, you know, a lesser kind of uh, experience that was also a positive one for you? Um, I had some... Uh, I had a few really, really close friends um, in high school, and 
we, they had my back. You know, there were a couple of times where, you know, somebody went to say something and they just turned on them. Like, uh, my good friend Stephanie um, has always been this sort of, like, <laughs> like this watchdog. She has my back. Um, and Mariah as well. They, they were the reason I was able to get through school and I didn't transfer or homeschool. Friends really can make a difference, can't they? What what can yeah. we do to be a good friend? <laughs> tell tell me what Mariah and Stephanie did for you that made it possible for you to, as you say, get through school without transferring or homeschooling. Stephanie was a watchdog, but could you just kind of unpack a little what you know what she did or what Mariah did, just as a lesson for those of us that want to be a good friend? Yeah. Um, so. Um, one thing that um, not everybody knows about, um, you know, brown girls is that our body hair comes in really, really thick and it comes in pretty early. And so, uh, and facial hair as well. So I had this like mustache as a third grader um, and I was very self-conscious about it. And it came in, you know, black and thick and sort of like a different texture hair. And so it was very noticeable. Um, and I actually used to like start shaving it in elementary school. But there was one day it was coming in and there was this, uh, you know, a little bit older boy. I think he was like middle school or maybe fifth grade. Um, he, you know, he yelled up at me. Oh, I've never seen a girl with a mustache before. And he, Stephanie turned around and she was like, well, look in the mirror and you'll see another one. <laughs> and... And, you know, things like things like that, you know, always having my back and, you know, Steph and Mariah, they they were always willing to listen and learn and joke. And I think just their total acceptance of who I am as a person and my acceptance of who they are, you know, that's what mattered and that's what got us through it. That's wonderful. I just, our half an hour has gone so fast. Do you have any <laughs> closing thoughts for people, Cece? Any parting words that we should carry with us? Absolutely. So if you are listening to this and you are wondering, you know, maybe you don't want to be some big activist and um, out speaking on this all the time, very loudly, for whatever reason, that's perfectly fine. But the first step to being an ally, you know, someone who wants to help, is seek first to understand. When someone says something to you, you know, recounting their experience that maybe puts you off a little bit, like, I can't stand it when white people come up to me and say, oh, can I touch your hair? And maybe you've done that and you don't see the issue. Seek first to understand. Ask, what, uh, why is that? And really try to see where they're coming from and understand the context around it. And that's, it's just a part of listening and listening to each other and caring for each other. And that's the most important thing you can do. I'm just 
again, bowled over with your wisdom combined with kindness, really trying to see where they're coming from, listening to each other. Thank you, Cece Ferrara. Thank you. Thank you so much.